The Religion of the Chinese by J. J. M. de Groot, Ph.D. Narrated by Graham Dunlop. Edited by Darren Grimes. Introduction Is China's religion a world religion, and as such worth studying? A place as a world religion must, without hesitation, be assigned to it on account of the vast number of its adherents. It has extended the circle of its influence far beyond the boundaries of the empire proper, and has gained access, together with Chinese culture generally, into Korea, Japan, Manchuria, and Turkestan, as well as into Indochina, though of course in modified forms. Hence, a proper understanding of the religions of East Asia, in general, requires in the first place an understanding of the religion of China. China's religion proper, that is to say apart from Buddhism, which is of foreign introduction, is a spontaneous product, spontaneously developed in the course of time. Its origin is lost in the night of ages. But there is no reason to doubt that it is the first religion the Chinese race ever had. Theories advanced by some scientists that its origin may be looked for in Chaldean or Bactrian countries must as yet be rejected as having no solid foundation. It has had its patriarchs and apostles, whose writings, or the writings about whom, hold a preeminent position, but it has no founders comparable with Buddha or Muhammad. It has had a spontaneous birth on China's soil. Since its birth, it has developed itself under the influence of the strongest conservatism. Its primeval forms were never, as far as is historically known, swept away by any other religion, or by tidal waves of religious movement and revolution. Buddhism eradicated nothing. The religion of the Crescent is only at the beginning of its work. That of the Cross has hardly passed the threshold of China. In order to understand its actual state, we have to distinguish sharply between its native and its exotic or Buddhist element. It is the native element which will occupy us first and principally. Chapter 1. Universalistic Animism, Polydemonism The primeval form of the religion of the Chinese, and its very core to this day, is animism. It is then the same element which is also found to be the root the central nerve of many primeval religions, the same even which eminent thinkers of our time, as Herbert Spencer, have put in the foreground of their systems as the beginning of all human religion of whatever kind. In China, it is based on an implicit belief in the animation of the universe and of every being or thing which exists in it. The oldest and holiest books of the empire teach that the universe consists of two souls or breaths, called yang and yin the yang representing light, warmth, productivity, and life, also the heavens from which all these good things emanate, and the yin being associated with darkness, cold, death, and the earth. The yang is subdivided into an indefinite number of good souls or spirits, called shen, the yin into particles or evil spirits, called kuei, specters. It is these shen and kuei which animate every being and everything. It is they also which constitute the soul of man. His shen, also called kun, immaterial, ethereal, like heaven itself from which it emanates, constitutes his intellect and the finer parts of his character, his virtues, while his kuei, or po, 
is thought to represent his less refined qualities, his passions, vices, they being borrowed from material earth. Birth consists in an infusion of these souls, death in their departure, the Shen returning to the Yang or heaven, the Kuei to the Yin or earth. Thus man is an intrinsic part of the universe, a microcosmos born from the macrocosmos spontaneously. But why should man alone be endowed by the universe with a dual soul? Every animal, every plant, even every object, which we are wont to call a dead object, has received from the universe the souls which constitute its life, and which may confer blessing on man or may harm him. A Shen, in fact, being a part of the Yang, or the beatific half of the universe, is generally considered to be a good spirit or god. A Kuei, however, belonging to the Yin, or the other half, is as a rule a spirit of evil. We should say a devil, specter, demon. There is no good in nature but that which comes from the Shen, or gods, no evil but that which the Kuei cause or inflict. With these dogmata before us, we may now say that the main base of the Chinese system of religion is a universalistic animism. The universe being in all its parts crowded with Shen and Kuei, that system is, moreover, thoroughly polytheistic and polydemonistic. The gods are such shen as animate heaven, sun, moon, the stars, wind, rain, clouds, thunder, fire, the earth, seas, mountains, rivers, rocks, stones, animals, plants, things, in particular also the souls of deceased men. And as to the demon world, nowhere under heaven is it so populous as in China. Quay swarm everywhere in numbers inestimable. It is an axiom which constantly comes out in conversing with the people, that they haunt every frequented and lonely spot, and that no place exists where man is safe from them. Public roads are haunted by them everywhere, especially during the night, when the power of the yin part of the universe, to which specters belong, is strongest. Numerous, in fact, are the tales of wretches who, having been accosted by such natural foes of man, were found dead by the roadside, without the slightest wound or injury being visible. Their souls had simply been snatched out of them. Many victims of such encounters could find their way home, but merely to die miserably shortly after. Others, hit by devilish arrows, were visited with boils or tumors, which carried them off, or they died without even any such visible marks of the shots. And how many wayfarers have fallen in with whole gangs of demons, with whom they engaged in pitched battles? They might stand their ground most heroically and ultimately worst their assailants, yet hardly at home they succumbed to disease and death. Ghosts of improperly buried dead haunting dwellings with injurious effect, and not laid until reburied decently, are the subject of many tales. Especially singular but very common it is to read of hosts of specters setting whole towns and countries in commotion and utterly demoralizing the people. Armies of spectral soldiers, foot and horse, are heard moving through the sky, especially at night, kidnapping children, smiting people with disease and death, playing tricks of all sorts, even obscenities, compelling men to defend themselves with noise of gongs, drums and kettles, with bows and swords and spears, and with flaming torches and fires. They steal the pigtails off of inoffensive people, cutting these off, actually in broad daylight, even from very respectable gentlemen and high nobles, 
preferably while enjoying some public theatrical performance in a square or bazaar, or when visiting a shop, or even in their own houses, in spite of securely barred doors. To some, the idea occurs that the miscreants may be men, bad characters, bent on deriving advantage somehow from the prevailing excitement. Thus, tumults arise, and the safety of unoffending people is placed in actual peril. Unless it be admitted by general consent that the mischief is done exclusively by invisible malignant specters. The officials interfere and to reassure the populace instill the tempest of emotion, imprison the persons upon whom suspicion falls. Preferably sending out their policemen and soldiers among members of secret religious sects. Severely persecuted by the government as heretics because enemies of the old and orthodox social order as evil-intentioned outlaws, the corroding canker of humanity. In most cases, their judicial examinations corroborate their preconceived suspicion, for they admirably understand the art of extorting, by scourge and torture, even from the most obdurate temperaments, and any confessions, but especially such as they beforehand have assumed to be true. Flagellation, banishment to Turkestan, strangulation with a rope, and similar things, inseparable from Chinese judicial methods, crown the work. While such whirlwinds of public excitement blow, the most intelligent as well as the most ignorant go wild with excitement and fear. The absurdest stories are circulated and universally believed. Officials in such emotional disturbances concert measures and throw oil into the fire. They issue proclamations, each directly calculated to increase the disturbance of the public mind. They exhort people to stay at home, close their doors, and look after their children. They prescribe medicines and charms to be used internally or externally. They try to avert the specters by means of sacrifices, summoning them to go away. Even emperors from the height of their thrones have posed with respect to specter plagues and sent officers and ministers to the regions where they prevailed in order to offer sacrifices to them, and in the sovereign's august name summon them to cause their terrible work. Such mental typhoons are seldom confined with narrow limits, but mostly spread over several provinces, where belief in specters and spectrophoby so thoroughly dominate thought and life, demon lore is bound to attain its highest development. Literature in China abounds with specter tales, no stories in Chinese eyes, but undeniable truth. A very large number may be traced to the books of Tang Dynasty, belonging to the 7th, 8th, or 9th century. Confucius divided the specters into three classes, those living in the mountains and forests, in the water and in the ground. The first class is the most dangerous. And among them, the most notorious are specters with one eye on the top of their heads, which merely by their presence cause drought, and as a consequence destruction of crops, dearth, famine, all of which mean in China destruction of thousands, nay millions of lives. Such calamities have always harassed China like chronic plagues. Books dating from the earliest times mention their prevalence. Religious ceremonies to avert them and bring down rains have always formed an integral part of the official duties of the princes, governors, and mandarins. The arrival of one pa, as these devils are called even in classical works, suffices to call such forth a catastrophe. It may come with the quickness of wind in order to defend yourself and your country against it, catch it and throw it into the dung pit or into the privy, 
and the drought will vanish. Thus runs the sovereign recipe. Water demons, too, are numerous and of various sorts. Most of them souls of drowned men, unable to release themselves from their watery grave unless they draw another human being into it. Accidents which befall those who cross a body of water are ascribed to those demons, lying in ambush for victims. They are a constant lurking danger to fishermen, boatmen, and washerwomen. They blow hats into the water, linen from the bleaching ropes, and while the owner exerts himself to recover his property, they treacherously keep the thing just beyond his reach until he loses his equilibrium and tumbles into a watery grave. Should a corpse be found on the silt, its arms or legs worked deep into the mud, everyone is sure to believe that it is a victim of a water ghost. Drawn down by those limbs with irresistible force, cramps paralyzing a swimmer are likewise the clutches of a water ghost. When a man is missed and later found dead in the water, everyone is ready to explain that a water ghost had destroyed him, away from his house by some trick, and drowned him. In the third place we have the demons which inhabit the ground. They dwell also in objects firmly attached to the soil, in houses and heavy things. As the soil, if fecundated by the celestial sphere, is the productive part of the universe, which engenders all sorts of things, which engenders all sorts of living things, disturbance of such earthly spirits by digging in the ground or moving heavy objects, naturally by the laws of sympathy and universalism, disturbs the repose and growth of the embryo in the tomb of woman. Their baneful influence even affects babies already born these as well as the vegetable kingdom being dependent for their growth on the life-producing earth. It is those spirits which cause convulsions, and everybody feels sure that, should a child fall into their clutches, it would certainly forthwith turn black and blue. They are all, of course, notorious for causing the pains of pregnancy, and even miscarriage. The fear of such a result restrains a man from many imprudent acts, should his wife or concubine be pregnant. Especially perilous it is then to drive a nail into the wall, as it might nail down the earth specter which resides in it, and cause the child to be reborn with a limb stiff and useless, or blind of one eye, or it might paralyze the bowels of a child already born, and give it constipation with fatal result. The dangers which threaten a future mother increase as her pregnancy advances. In the end, nothing may be displaced in the house. Even the shifting of light objects becomes a source of danger. Instances are known of fathers who have rolled up their bed mats after they had long lain flat, being frightened by the birth of children with rolled up ears. Once I saw a boy with a hare lip, and he was told by the father that his wife, when pregnant with his child, had thoughtlessly made a cut in an old coat of his while mending it. But nothing is so perilous as the commotion created among earth specters by repairs of houses, or by the application of labor to the soil. When, at Amoy, anyone undertakes anything of the kind, the neighbors take good care to seek lodgings elsewhere for their women who are expecting confinement, not allowing them to return until the work is fairly advanced, and the disturbed spirits have had time to resettle in their old abodes. In default of a suitable place to shelter such a woman, public opinion obliges the builder to delay till after her confinement. The natural history of the demon kingdom is not herewith exhausted. A very large contingent has been contributed to it, in all times and ages, by the animal kingdom, 
Animals have, in fact, the same natural constitution as men, being built up the same yang and yin substances of which the universe itself consists. And while identification of specters with men prevails in demonism, the investment of animal specters with human attributes, and even human forms, has been the result. China has its werewolves, but especially its tiger demons. The royal tiger is our most ferocious brute, the terror of its people often throwing villages into general commotion and panic, and compelling country people to remove to safer spots. Folklore abounds with tales of man-tigers ravening and bloodthirsty demons, with tales of men accused of having raged as tigers, being delivered to the magistrates and formally put to death by their orders, of wretches being chased by the people with lances and swords, or buried in their own houses. Wounds inflicted on a werebeast are believed to be visible on the corresponding part of the body when it resumes human shape, a trait also of our own lycanthropy. As in other countries where royal tigers live, so in China exceptional specimens are known to prey preferably on men. But instead of ascribing this idiosyncrasy to their having experienced how easy a prey man generally is, or to their steady predilection for human flesh after having once tasted it, the Chinese aver that the man-eater is incited by the ghost of every last victim to a new murder. Thus, fancy has created a class of injurious human specters in the service of the monster or sometimes thought to inhabit it. Each such specter brings the beast on the track of a new human victim, desiring nothing better than to deliver itself from its bondage by thus getting a substitute. There is hardly any species of animal in China about whose charges into men folklore has not stories to tell. Foxes and vixens especially, but also wolves, dogs, and snakes are notorious for thus insinuating themselves into human society for immoral purposes. Disguised as charming, handsome lads and female beauties, and not seldom they devour them in the end. At all such events make them ill, delirious, insane. Reynard is also depicted as an enormous impostor, so enormous that there are instances of his having assumed the garb of religious holiness, nay, the shape of the Buddhas themselves, to insinuate himself into the favor of men, and even to obtain access to such awe-inspiring places as imperial palaces. Instances are even known on his descending on a cloud in a bodhisattva shape, to settle on an altar and appropriate for years the sacrifices offered by men and women who flock to worship his divinity. Evil may be inflicted upon men by stags, by hares, monkeys, rats, otters, snakes, tortoises, toads, frogs, even by such tame domestic animals as cats, donkeys, goats, pigs, and cows, assuming human forms, seducing men and women, bewitching their senses to the detriment of their health, haunting their dwellings, possessing the inmates, and making them ill. Tales are even circulated about cocks and geese, crows and other birds, even fishes and insects, doing every sort of evil, especially after assuming human shape. Those endless changes of men into beasts and beasts into men, in order to play their tricks as devils, are the best illustrations of the influence exerted upon the Chinese mind by the system of universalism, teaching animation of all beings by the same yang and yin, who compose the Tao, or order of the universe. Moreover, trees, shrubs, herbs, and objects are implicitly believed to send out their souls in order to inflict evil on men. 
We read the whole gangs of man-shaped specters of large and small dimensions, spreading consternation and fear, and being later on found to be leaves blown about by the wind. We read of people overhearing conversations in the dead of night, which at daybreak were discovered to have been held by utensils or other things, and were no more heard after the things had been burned or totally destroyed. Lids of coffins have shot through the air, wounding people or crushing them to death, and the spirits could not be laid out by burning the coffins and their contents. A great number of such flying object specters emitted a nauseous smell of decaying human or animal matter, and when touched were found to be soft and slippery. Objects which were in the possession of ancestors may recall the remembrance of these to superstitious minds, that is to say, they may haunt them. Rotten wood and old brooms may haunt houses as incendiary specters. Images of men and animals in particular are firmly believed to be capable of haunting, being in fact completely identified by childish minds with the beings they represent. Tales tell how the cause of the evil was discovered by brave and clever men, who lying in ambush wounded the specter during its haunting excursion in animal shape, or in the form of a man how they followed the bloody track and discovered the animal, tree, or object wounded, or with the arrow in its body. Such tales are very numerous and afford curious reading. The fate of such a specter is soon told. If an animal, it was killed, burned, cooked, and eaten. If a tree, it was hewn down and burned. Especially mischievous and dangerous are souls of animals, trees, and objects which are old. To hew down an old tree is most perilous work entailing vengeance from the specter, disease, death. There is in Fukien an aversion to planting trees. The planters, as soon as the stems have become as thick as their necks, being sure to be throttled by the indwelling spirit. This may account, to some extent, for the almost total neglect of forestry in that part of China, so that hardly any except self-sown trees are growing there. We see then the Chinese people believing itself to inhabit a world filled with dangerous specters on every side. I have stated that they perform in the Tao, or order of the world, the leading part in the distribution of evil, because they represent its yin, or cold and dark half. They thus exercise a dominant influence over human fate as well as the Shen, the good spirits of the Yang, who are the distributors of blessing. But the Yang is above the yin, as heaven which belongs to it is above the earth. Heaven, then, is the chief Shen, or God, who controls all specters and their doings. And we must not fail to lay stress upon the great tenet of Chinese theology, that no spirits harm man, but with the authorization of heaven, or its silent consent. In its oldest form, this dogma is clearly laid down in the Yi and the Shu, the principal classical Bibles of China's religion and social and political institutions. We read there, it is heaven's Tao or way to give felicity to the good and bring misfortune upon the bad. The Kuei harm the proud, the Shen render the modest happy. Thus we see that the Kuei, or specters, as sole and general agents of heaven for the distribution of evil among men, are an indispensable element in China's religion. Their dogmatical existence is the main inducement to the worship of heaven, which aims first of all to secure the propitiation of the supreme power to the end that it may withhold its avenging quay. All the Shen or gods of inferior rank, being parts of the Yang, are the natural enemies of the quay, because they are the constituents of the Yin, 
Indeed, the yang and the yin in the order of the world are in an eternal struggle, manifested by alternation of day and night, summer and winter, heat and cold. The worship and propitiation of the gods, which is the main part of China's religion, has, like the worship of heaven or the supreme god, no better purpose but to induce the gods to defend man against the world of specters, or by descending and living among men to drive specters away by their overawing presence. That cult, in fact, means invocation of happiness. But happiness simply means absence of misfortune, which the specters bring. Idolatry means the disarming of specters by means of the gods. Accordingly, the belief in specters is not in China, as among us, banished to the domain of superstition or even nursery tale. It is a fundamental principle of China's universalistic religion. It is a doctrine as true as the existence of the yin. As true, then, as the existence of the order of the world, or the Tao itself. But for that doctrine and consequences, China's cult of gods would appear rather meaningless, and would certainly show itself in forms quite different from those it actually assumes. If missionaries in China wish to conquer idolatry, they will have to destroy the belief in demons first, together with the classical cosmological dogma of the Yang and Yin, in which it is rooted and which constitutes to this day Confucian truth and wisdom of the very highest kind. They will have to educate China in a correct knowledge of nature and its laws. China's conversion will require no less than a complete revolution in her culture. Knowledge and mode of thought, which have been tutored throughout all time by antiquity, and the classical books through which antiquity speaks. A study of the relations of the Chinese to their spirit world and that of the spirit world itself, consequently, is a study of their religion. It is the study of the animism, magic, and idolatry of a great part of the human race. It is at the same time a study of customs, belief, and culture. It is also the study of the antiquity and history of culture. Indeed, more perfectly than anywhere else in this world, culture is in China a picture of the past. Her literature may be regarded as the chief creator of this phenomena. Mental culture and religion have indeed been transmitted in China from age to age by tradition, and tradition was always guided by books in which it was written, and the oldest of which are the most esteemed. It was the books that, merely describing them, in fact petrified them, keeping them remarkably free from novelty, which, in Chinese civilized opinion, always is corruption and heterodoxy. Almost everything which the books have to tell, the Chinese take for truth and genuine fact, as reliable as any, they being in fact not advanced far enough in science and culture to distinguish between the possible and the impossible. This fact, too, renders their books of the highest value to students of China's religion. Chinese books must of necessity be their guides. Individual experience and personal inquiry, though highly useful, becomes matters of secondary importance. The belief in a world of specters, which are of high influence upon man, is in China's religion even more than its basis. It is a principal pillar in the building of morality. The Tao, or the order of the universe, which is the yearly and daily evolutions and revolutions of the yang and the yin, never deviates or diverges. It is just and equitable to all men, producing and protecting them impartially. Heaven, the greatest power of the universe, the yang itself, by means of the gods rewards the good, and by means of the specters punishes the bad, with perfect justice. There is, in other words, 
in this world no felicity but for the good. Clear illustrations of the belief in the infliction of punishments by spirits acting with authorization of heaven we have as early as the Sochuen, a book ascribed to a disciple of Confucius and therefore invested all succeeding ages with dogmatic authority. That book also teaches that spirits even punish or bless whole kingdoms and peoples for the conduct of the rulers, descending to make it flourish if its rulers are virtuous, or to make it decline if they are wicked. Accounts of the distribution of rewards and punishments by ghosts are disseminated throughout the literature of all periods. Ethnologists have written collections of such accounts for the maintenance of public morality. They tell the souls of murdered people betraying their murderers and the circumstances of the crime to the authorities while dreaming or dozing, and showing them the place where the corpse or other pieces de conviction may be found. They relate how murderers, seeing themselves so mysteriously detected, make a clean breast at once, and confess to everything. In one case, the ghost prevents the culprit from escaping by nailing him by his hair to a wall before betraying him. We are also told of victims of judicial error, chastising their unworthy judges with disease and death. A child murdered by his stepmother haunts her home so ferociously as to bring death upon her and her offspring. An innocent wealthy man in Kuang Tong put to death by a rapacious prefect merely in order to confiscate his possessions regularly appears in that grandee's premises, stubbornly beating the great drum placed there for all who apply for redress of wrong, until the prefect sickens from remorse and anxiety and dies. Especially numerous in the books are instances of persons haunted by the souls of their victims on their deathbeds, where in most cases the ghosts themselves state expressively that they are avenging themselves with the special authorization of heaven, at the foot of whose throne they have lodged their complaints. The diversity of such tales and traditions is, of course, infinite. Numerous also are the tales of spirits, under obligation for clemency, rewarding their benefactors. Imperial commanders have been victorious through the help of hosts of specters, assisting their troops in battle. Tales of ghosts rewarding those who bestowed care upon their unburied or badly buried corporeal remains occur in Chinese literature in strikingly large numbers tending to maintain and promote such care as a branch of social benevolence, and as a subject of imperial legislation in all ages, especially people laying sacrilegious hands upon tombs who have incurred the revenge of the injured souls. In conversing with the Chinese, we find that the belief in specters and their punishment prevails throughout all classes, unshaken to this day, continuously revived, as it is, in everybody by hundreds of tales handed down from the good old times. And all are considered authentic because of the simple fact that they occur in books. Ghosts may interfere at any moment with human business and fate, either favorably or unfavorably. This doctrine indubitably exercises a mighty and salutary influence upon morals. It enforces respect for human life and a charitable treatment of the infirm, the aged, and the sick, especially if they stand on the brink of the grave. Benevolence in humanity, thus based on fear and selfishness, may have little ethical value in our eyes. Yet their existence in a country where culture has not yet taught man to cultivate goodness for the sake of good alone may be greeted as a blessing. Those virtues are even extended to animals, for in fact these too have souls which may work vengeance or bring reward. 
But the firm belief in ghosts and their retributive justice has still other effects. It deters from grievous and provoking injustice, because the wronged party, thoroughly sure of the avenging power of his own ghost when disembodied, will not seldom contrive to convert himself into a wrathful ghost by committing suicide. It is still fresh in my memory how such a course was followed in 1886 by a shopkeeper at Amoy, pressed hard by a usurer who had brought him to the verge of ruin. To extort payment, this man ran away with the shutters of his shop, thus giving its contents a prey to burglars. But in that same night, the wretch hanged himself at his persecutor's doorpost, the sight of his corpse setting the whole ward in commotion at daybreak, and bringing all the family storming to the spot. The usurer, frightened out of his wits, had no alternative but to pay them a considerable indemnification, with an additional sum for the burial expense on which they pledged their promise not to bring him up before the magistrate. Pending those noisy negotiations, the corpse remained untouched where it hung. Thus the usurer had a hairbreadth escape from jail, torture, and other judicial woes. But whether he slipped through the hands of his ethereal victim, no one can tell. It impressed me to hear on that occasion from the Chinese that occurrences of this kind were very far from rare, and they told me a good many, then fresh in everybody's memory. As sure as the spirit's retaliation must reach murders and causers of suicide, so sure is it to come down upon any persecutor whose victim dies of grief or despair. Whatever the deed may do, for which it is rendered, such spiritual vengeance may manifest itself in different ways. The ghost may enter the body of his enemy, and make him, under the influence of a glass too much, or a fit of mental derangement, blab out his crime with all its particulars, so that earthly justice becomes able to lay its hands upon him. Or it may take possession of his body to render him ill or mad. It may even cause his death after long and painful suffering, or drive him to self-murder. Prevalent opinion, continuously inspired anew by literature of all times and ages, admitting that spiritual vengeance may descend in all imaginable forms, admits also that it may come down in the form of disease and death upon the culprit's offspring. This tenant, so revolting to our own feelings of justice, tallies perfectly with the Chinese conception that the severest punishment which may be inflicted on one, both in this present life and in the next, is decline or extermination of his male issue leaving nobody to support him in his old age, nobody to protect him after his death from misery and hunger, by caring for his corpse and grave, and sacrificing to his manies. A dissolute son squandering the possessions of his family, and disgracing it by licentious and criminal life, is often taken for a man who, having been wronged by his father or an ancestor, had himself reborn as that son, in order to thus have his cruel vengeance. Conversely, an excellent child, which is glory of its family, generally passes for a reincarnation of some grateful spirit. The vengeance of spirits may in many a case be a very long in reaching its object. For thus, the Chinese say, every man lives under the dominion of his destiny, created, of course, by the order of the universe, the Tao, which is the vicissitudes of the yang and the yin. And if that natural fate is felicitous, firm, solid, on account of merits gained by the individual himself in his present life, or in a previous existence, or by his ancestors, the world of specters is perfectly powerless against him, seeing these having to comply altogether with heaven's will or Tao. 
but as soon as his store of merits is outbalanced by an adequate amount of demerits, his account with heaven being thus squared, the rancorous spirits regain full liberty to attack his tottering destiny. And whatever expedients human genius may now set at work to ward off evil from him, they remain altogether without effect. This simple complex of tenets lays disrespect for human lives under great restraint. They are often efficient in preventing female infanticide, a monstrous custom practiced extensively among the poor. The fear that the souls of murdered little ones may bring misfortune induces many a father or mother to lay girls they are unwilling to bring up in the street for adoption into some family or into a foundling hospital. At least one such institution is to be found in many populous towns. They are founded and maintained by the authorities in concert with the wealthy and fashionable citizens. These worthies increase their stock of merit by distributing from time to time tracts against infanticide. Such documents for the most part afford curious reading. They give wise exhortations from the lips of gods and saints with terrifying instances of punishments inflicted by unseen powers and baby souls on parents and midwives guilty of child murder. Many tracts, shaped like books, are profusely illustrated. Such narratives of child murder, though they bear all the marks of imagination, perfectly well answer their ethical purpose, deeply impressing as they do the simple-minded. Their topic is often, of course, people reaping rewards for having virtuously abstained from the monstrous practice or having tried to deter others from it. The highest ambition of every Chinese being admission into the Mandarin class, it becomes almost a matter of course to find success at the world-famed examinations which open access to official posts, foremost among the rewards bestowed by grateful spirits. Numerous instances of their having helped candidates to obtain their degree occur in the books of the present and the past. On the other hand, being plucked often passes for a proof that no grateful spirits interfered or that some rancorous spirit prevented the candidate from producing a super-excellent essay. There are always among the host of candidates some who become ill in their cells, or deranged in mind, or even die in consequence of nervousness or excitement. It should be stated with full emphasis that the Chinese generally ascribe such events to revengeful specters. Curious tales circulate as to how they behave. Some candidates they berave of consciousness. Others they render ill, mad, delirious, and of a greater number they stifle the memories, making them sit silly over the writing paper, unable to put down even one sentence or character. Some are kept in a constant state of nervousness by soft voices and sounds on the roof of their cells. Others are haunted by the souls of their murdered infants. Nay, it sometimes occurs that, under the pressure of some revengeful ghost, candidates write down a circumstantial confession of their crimes in lieu of an essay on the theme given. There are also those who, on leaving their cells, blurt out their sins aloud before the whole crowd of candidates, or are found dead in their cells, having opened an artery with a shirt of their teapot or teacup in default of other cutting instruments. With respect to virtuous candidates, the spirits behave quite otherwise. They clear their brains, arousing in them many a bright idea, which converted into writing, invinces depth of learning, wisdom, and intellect. A study of Chinese thought and life attests decidedly the existence of a point of importance, which we have now, in conclusion, to emphasize as a cornerstone in the foundations of China's religion, 
It is a doctrine of the Chinese nation, a dogma, an axiom, an inveterate conviction that spirits exist, keeping up a most lively intercourse with the living, as intimate almost as that among men. In every respect, that intercourse bears an active character. It brings blessing and evil as well, the spirits thus eventually ruling mankind's fate. From them, man has everything to hope, but equally much to fear. As a natural consequence, it is around the ghosts and spirits that China groups her religious acts, with the sole intent to avert their wrath and the evil it brings, and to ensure their goodwill and help. The acts, manners, and methods by which she tries to realize this dual object are numerous. They are the fruits of the inventive genius of China, as a whole through a long series of centuries, the reflection of her wit and intellect, both old and modern, which conversely nothing could illustrate so well as her universalistic animistic religion. Those acts, manners, and methods will then be the chief topic of the following chapters. Chapter 2. The Struggle Against Spectres In my first chapter, I have tried to demonstrate that the basis of China's religion is the moving universe, that is to say, the rotation of nature, called the Tao, or road, manifesting itself in the revolution of time, the days and the seasons, or, which means the same thing, in the vicissitudes of the operations of yang and yin respectively the bright and warm, the dark and cold, halves of the universe. I have demonstrated also that this dualism is considered to consist in the activity of Shen, which are the components of the Yang, and of Kuei, which are the components of the Yin, the Shen thus being gods from whom good proceeds, and the Kuei being specters by whom evil is wrought. The conclusion is that the Chinese religion must be conceived as a system aiming at the propitiation of the aforesaid gods, in order to prevail upon them to prevent the devils from doing harm to man. It is then self-evident that the universe is filled up in all its parts with gods and specters and that China's religion is a broad system of polytheism and demonism. I have afforded you a peep into that demonism. I have laid stress on the fact that it has reached a high stage of development, the highest probably that might be reached and that the demon world is placed under the natural tutelage of heaven, and occupies the rank of moral educator of the people. In this important role, it claims the attention of all students of foreign religion. This demonism has thus fulfilled a great mission to many thousands of millions who have lived and died on Asiatic soil. Demonism, the lowest form of religion, in China a source of ethics and moral education. This certainly may be called a singular phenomenon, perhaps the only one of the kind to be found on this terrestrial globe. Demonism further has another important and interesting side. It is the principal author of magic, which pervades the religious system of the Chinese in all its parts. The intense belief in the dangerous omnipresence of evil spirits, which has dominated all classes of the Chinese from the earliest times, and has never been weakened by growth or change of culture, necessarily leads us to the logical inference that, Likewise, from the earliest times, people must have sought eagerly for means to defend themselves against those beings. No people in this world ever were more enslaved to fear of specters than the Chinese. No people in this world ever was more enslaved to fear of specters than the Chinese. No people, therefore, has excelled the Chinese in inventing means to render them harmless. The war against the hosts of spirits of evil, in fact, bears in China 
from days of yore, the character of magic, art, or skill, that is to say, of Shu. It is guided by a strategy invented by the thinking faculties of the nation, by its sophistry passing for philosophy, but especially by tactics which ancestors have declared in word or writing to be useful and effective. In all ages, this war has had its leaders, men of genius, magicians, priests, possessing wise or occult fang, expedients or methods, defense or attack, self-invented or inherited from older generations, expedients by which specters may be paralyzed, put to flight, or even destroyed or killed. A study of those means is a study in natural philosophy and popular intellect and at the same time a study in the boundless sway which superstition exercises on all minds in the flowery kingdom, from that of the most unlearned man in the street up to the ministers and emperors. Spectres being also the chief causes of disease and plague, their ejection or expulsion always was a prominent element in the healing art. Exercising magic for medical and other ends is no doubt very old in China probably not much younger than the belief in specters, which is almost equivalent to saying that it is nearly as old as the people itself. In writings of the Han Dynasty, 206 BC to 220 AD, or relating to that period, we find quite an abundance of details on the subject. The great war against specters has, of course, always been conducted on the main principle that the world of specters belongs to the yin, so that the most efficacious weapons against it are derived from the yang the warming and luminous half of the universe. The sun is the chief active part of the yang, and therefore the principal expeller and destroyer of demons. Therefore it is at night, especially in the midnight hour, that the demon world reigns supreme and specters freely prowl, and at dawn that they flee. It is the cock-crow which summons them to retire, and the lines of Shakespeare have not been written for Europe only. The cock that is the trumpet to the morn doth with his lofty and shrill-sounding throat awaken the god of day, and at this warning, whether in sea or fire, in earth or air, the extravagant and erring spirit hies to his confine. No wonder, then, if China anyone suddenly swoons, being seized by apoplexy, or, as the Chinese say, by a devil, blood of a cock is as soon as possible smeared under his heart. The head of the solar bird is attached to the house in times of plague, to avert the specters which cause this calamity. Earthenware cocks are placed on housetops, especially on New Year's Day, which marks the beginning of spring and therefore the opening of the yearly victorious campaign of the yang against the yin. Images of cocks are fixed to doors, to defend the house for the whole year. At that season in many parts of China, the bird is not eaten for a few days. In general, it holds a high position in medical art. Its bones, flesh, blood, gall, spleen, etc. are often mixed in exercising medicines. The triumphal progress of the yang in early spring is characterized by the flowering of the peach. Therefore, this tree in the red, brilliant color of its blossoms represent the destruction of the yin, or winter, and the spectral world which is identified with it. Therefore, from the oldest times to this day, Branches, boards, and human images of peach wood have been fixed on New Year's Day to doors and gates. At present, those things are replaced by sheets of red paper, which nobody who has set foot on Chinese soil can have failed to notice. Red, in consequence, is under all circumstances a color expressing felicity, seeing that felicity consists in destruction of specters, the enemies of human welfare. The peach tree 
and its fruit play a foremost part in Chinese pharmacology, a part not less important than that of the cock. The same story repeats itself with respect to the tiger, an animal associated for some hazy reasons with the sun. Its teeth and claws are worn as powerful protective amulets. Fever patients may cure themselves by zealously reading tiger stories or by having them read at their bedside. Light and fire, actually parts of the great yang, principle of nature, are as destructive to the demon world as the yang is to the yin. Bonfires, torches, candles, lanterns are used by the whole nation as a protection from evil. They are especially kindled and lighted at the commencement of the year. To increase the awe-inspiring effect of bonfires, pieces of bamboo were in days of yore thrown into them, which, exploding, produced a cackling, crackling, popping noise. This bamboo was the prototype of tubes of paper filled with gunpowder used for the same purpose at the present day in enormous quantities throughout the empire, especially about New Year. Foreigners all know those terrible noisemakers by the name of crackers. By extension of this principle, the conviction reigns that all noise whatever, the louder the better, is a mighty defense against demonry. The rattling of drums, the clashing of cymbals, the thundering of gongs resound throughout China every day, especially in summer, when mortality increases, compelling the people to redouble their devil-expelling energy. Noise-making is in China a work of merit, frequently performed gratuitously by benevolent people for the sake of private and public weal and health. Smoking, even scorching patients with fire, and cruelly cauterizing them with burning charcoal, or curing them by circles of ashes, are in China the order of the day. Such treatment of persons afflicted by demonry, that is to say, especially sufferers from fever and delirium, madmen, idiots, is a queer drama of everyday occurrence. Spells and curses are at the same time yelled out to drive the devil out of the patient. Processions with torches, lanterns, volleys from firelocks, loaded with blank cartridges, concert of crackers, gongs and cymbals may be seen as passing through the streets in times of epidemic for the purifications of towns and wards. They occurred as early as pre-Christian times, being mentioned in the classical works, and were celebrated at the beginning of every year. These processions are very instructive, showing as pagan animism is in full activity. They contain men and boys and even women, masked and accoutred as gods and goddesses. For gods or shen are yang spirits, and thus by their nature destroy or drive away the specters of the yin. Ahead of them we see two gods, named Shen Tu and Yu Li, who, as ancient Tradition says, have arraigned, fettered, and condemned specters under a peach tree, somewhere in the southeast or the region of the morning sun, and have thrown them as food to tigers. Having thus afforded protection to the human race, they are to this day invested with the dignity of guardians of houses, and are fixed in effigy to the gates and doors. There are also images of all sorts of other gods in the procession, seated in dignified attitudes and palanquins. The devil-expelling procession is generally organized by the committee which administers a temple dedicated to the tutelary divinity of the village, or, in a town, to the god of a ward or parish. It is celebrated and repeated with an animation and waste of money, proportionate to the cruelty with which the plague devils do their terrifying work. 
The money required is raised by means of subscription lists among the villagers or parishioners, and the mandarins are expected to inscribe their names at the top of the list for no small sum. As a rule, the principal god of the temple himself dictates on which nights the procession shall go out, so as to work with success, as also through which streets it shall pass. He does so by the mouth of a man into whom he has descended, and who indicates this possession by wriggling about in a state of frenzy. This man is afterwards seen in the procession, because the specters are deemed to be afraid of the god who dwells in him. He is then garbed in nature's raiment of bare skin to the waist, his hair flowing down disheveled in a state of delirium, proving that the god is in him. Daggers are deeply implanted in his cheeks or in the flesh of his upper arms, so that much blood trickles out. With his sword he deals blows around him, cleaving the air in his assault on beings which nobody sees but he. At times he looks sleepy and unconscious. At other moments he hops and jumps, spins around and rolls from side to side, inflicting bloody wounds on his own back with his sword, or with a wooden ball studded with sharp iron points, which he bears by a cord in his left hand. Often also men who are possessed by other gods appear in the procession, all behaving in the same way. One or more, should the gods have ordered it, are carried round on litters which rest by means of shafts on the shoulders of four men, and the seat, the back, and the arms of which, as also the place on which the feet rest, are armed with long nails pointed upwards, so that they stick into the flesh. Or such a litter is replaced by a nail bed, on which a man lies stretched at full length, or by a big chair, the seat, back, arms, and foot rests of which are formed of parallel swords, on the edges of which the body rests or leans. The bleeding men are thus carried round for hours. Occasionally there may be seen a woman among them, submitting herself to the same disgusting torment. Nor is it uncommon to see in the procession such a dervish with a thick needle stuck through his tongue, spitting the blood on sheets of paper, which the crowd eagerly sees, deeming them to possess the devil-dispelling power of the god who dwells in him. Such a blood charm may protect the whole family if it is affixed to the lintel of its dwelling. Should the plague not abate, or even rage with increased virulence, the possessions are compelled to augment their activity. The bearers of the gods loudly cry and scream, and now and then actually break into a gallop, or they give a swinging movement to the palanquins of their holy contents. Priests, professedly of the Taoist religion, in full ceremonial dress, trot up and down in the train, expelling the specters with their jingling handbells and buffalo horns in which they blow at intervals while ejaculating, exercising formula. They too may be seen giving vent to their fury against the specters by brandishing a sword, or, should this instrument too long have proved of no effect, an axe. The clamor of gongs, the popping of crackers, the buzz of the crowd, and the volleys of firelocks reach the apex of intensity, especially when, moreover, blunderbusses detonate before official mansions and temples. A long train of some hundred notable men, well-dressed, bearing smoking incense sticks in their hands, fill with odorous scent the road of the gods who follow in the rear. They mutter an exercising poem. A division of soldiers or civilians in military uniform follows, blowing long, specter-dispelling trumpets. Behind them comes the long row of 
palanquins containing the gods, each of them escorted, as if he were a living mandarin on earth, by a retinue composed of bearers of gongs, fans of state, square boards inscribed with his divine names and titles, and a warning to the public to keep a respectful silence and not obstruct the road. There are also policemen with whips and rattans to clear the populace from the middle of the street or armed with bamboo lathes or flogging sticks of daily use in tribunals. I have seen processions extending enormously beyond the average length by many hundreds of men, each bearing a lantern, the god having ordered through the mouth of his woo that every family in the parish should have itself represented in the train by such an object. The field of exercising magic is so long and so broad that quite a volume would be needed to describe merely its outlines. It may be safely said that the whole of China is in arms against specters, with swords, even with swords of copper coins bound together, and furthermore with daggers, clubs, spears, bows, and arrows. In many cases, such weapons bear devil-dispelling sentences. They are to be brandished over the sick, the faint, and the mad, with loud yells. In obstinate cases, even axes, hammers, and mallets are swung. Actual thrashings with such objects are deemed to be highly salutary to patients. It may suffice simply to keep such weapons in the house. Weapons are especially appreciated if they have been in the possession of famous generals. Twigs and brooms are also esteemed, and so are mirrors. It being believed that, through them, specters may be discovered and thus robbed of the protection afforded by their invisibility. Counterfeits of all those things of reduced size, especially made from peach wood, are generally worn in the clothes as amulets. The Tao, or order of the world, represents all that is correct, normal, or right, Qing or Tuan, in the universe. It does indeed never deviate from its course. It consequently includes all correct and all righteous dealings of men and spirits, which alone promote universal happiness in life. All other acts, as they oppose to the Tao, are incorrect, abnormal, unnatural, or, as it is especially expressed, Si or Yin. It is clear that there may be such anti-natural actions as well among men as among spirits. They are all detrimental to the good of the world. They destroy the prosperity and peace which are the highest good of man, and as a consequence, destroy also all good, beneficial government. They may thus endanger both the world and the throne. If they proceed from men, they ought to be combated by everybody and eradicated. It is the natural duty of right-minded, orthodox rulers and statesmen to persecute such heresies, and even the thoughts and sayings which produce them, the more so as they may be detrimental to virtue and morality, but for which humanity cannot possibly prosper, nor exist for any length of time. And when such things proceed from bad spirits, a defensive war should be waged against them by man, either with or without the help of his good spirits or gods. They should be fought, repulsed, driven away, exercised, if possible, annihilated by artful expedients, clever magic. Which now are the qui, which commit deeds contrary to the Tao, or order of the universe. They are, of course, those which perform their wicked work without authorization or consent of heaven, the greatest power in the Tao. Against them alone exercising magic can be performed with success. Against all others it is totally vain, and only propitiation of heaven by sacrifices and masses can afford protection. Exorcism, in other terms, can only serve the good and the innocent. 
From this great doctrine that specters may be in the universe, the anti-natural element representing whatever is abnormal, another principle directly emanates. All that is normal or correct, or responds in every respect to the order of the world, its Tao, of course, naturally and necessarily neutralizes and expels specters. This dogma has naturally provided the Chinese with some of the best weapons for their perpetual war with the demon world, namely the classical writings, the great and only instruments for maintaining the Tao in human life and action. Since the Han Dynasty, those old books have ever been treated by the government and the most learned men of the nation as the sole guides for the Tao of man. It is they which teach the Chinese people the opinions, the principles and polity of its first, and therefore holiest ancestors, who better than any creature knew what is Tao, seeing that they lived during the formation of the universal order on this earth, and even took part in its completion. The rules of logic, therefore, dictate a slavish adherence to these books as Bibles for individual, domestic, and social life. But for this adherence, the fate of man, which is absolutely dependent on his accord in life and behavior with the order of the universe, can be nothing but misery, wreck, and ruin, brought about through the agency of the Quay, the natural authors of destruction and death. It is then the classics, together with life and a government framed on them, which afford the very best protection against specters. On the other hand, there is nothing in this world so dangerous for the national safety, public health, and welfare as heterodoxy, which means acts, institutions, doctrines not based upon the classics. To stern Confucianists, it is indeed a dogma, openly preached in books, that the introduction of Buddhism has delivered up China as a prey to the demon world and its all its evils. And I need not say that all China scorns Christianity and its preachers for the same terrible reason. In the literal sense, the missionary in China unchains the devil and his crew, with the ocean of woe these bring. How brilliant, how glorious, on the other side, stands Confucianism with its scholars, every inch of every one of them thoroughly imbued with classical learning and perfection, each an apostle of orthodoxy, and in this capacity a pillar of the Tao or correct order of the world. It is surprising that they are the natural enemies of those barbarian disturbers of the universal order among men. And is it surprising also that Confucianists, who thoroughly study the classics, are beyond the reach of evil? Even simple schoolboys and students, especially those who, as most of them do, believe themselves to be actual or future progenies of classical learning and scholarship believe themselves at the same time proof against demonry of all kinds, and mandarins recruited from among the best of such progenies, that is to say, from among graduates, and moreover actual parts of the machine of government which is entirely composed of classical principles and tenets, are of all mortal men farthest beyond the reach of demonry, unless by neglect of duty or by vice or evil living. They wander from the great path, or Tao, so that the heaven therefore allows its specters to attack and punish them. But there is more than that. From all those scholars, a powerful anti-spectral influence emanates, putting the worst demons to flight, even maltreating them, and bringing on them death and destruction. And this is especially the case with mandarins, to which the Son of Heaven, who is the Lord and Master of all spirits in heaven and on earth, has delegated his power. Hence the phenomenon that mandarins often take an active part in demon-expelling processions and other exercising work, 
especially in times of epidemic. The stupid confidence of the people in their exercising capacities goes so far as to ascribe these capacities to characters or signs written with red ink pencils, which they have used for writing their letters and decrees. Such pencils are fixed over doors or placed on the sick to cure them. Underlings in tribunals and offices sell them to the people and to shopkeepers for a goodly price. As also visiting cards of mandarins, impressions of their seals, waste envelopes, and so on. In particular those of viceroys, provincial chief judges, and other dignitaries of first rank. Such things are also burned to ashes, mixed with water, and given to patients to drink. The poor, who cannot afford to buy them, content themselves with those of schoolmasters or other members of the learned class, even of schoolboys, or they invite these persons to draw small circles of red ink around the pustules and ulcers from which children in all parts of China so commonly suffer. I have said that classical works are among the best weapons in the war against specters. Even the simple presence of a copy, or a fragment, or a leaf of a classic is a mighty preservative, and an excellent medicine for spectral disease. As early as the Han Dynasty, instances are mentioned of men having protected themselves against danger and misfortune by reciting classical phrases. But also writings and sayings of any kind, provided they be of an orthodox stamp, destroy specters and their influences. Literary men, when alone in the dark, ensure their safety by reciting their classics. Should babies be restless because of the presence of specters, classical passages do excellent service as lullabies. No wonder that, according to tradition, traceable to books of 2,000 years ago, the specters wailed at night when holy mythical Cheng Ke invented the art of writing. A high rank among magical exercising books in popular opinion, in fact one of the highest positions, is assigned in China to the almanac. This has its various reasons, all now easy to understand. It actually is a classical book as the principles on which it is framed are believed to date back to the earliest period of China's existence. Moreover, it points out to the nation the proper days for all the principal business of life, and also the days which are unfit, unpropitious, and even dangerous for performing anything of importance. In other words, it teaches man on which days his various acts are in harmony with the Tao, or the course of nature, which is the course of time thus being the compass needle which shows man how to keep to the path of natural normality, the sole means of ensuring happiness and welfare. The almanac is diametrically opposed to whatever is si, or abnormal, represented by the spectral world. In this respect, it stands exactly on par with the classics. Finally, with the special object of keeping his people in the one correct Tao, the emperor himself gave the almanac to them in days of yore and does so to this day, and we know that whatever emanates from the Son of Heaven keeps specters in complete subjection, because he is the chief and the lord of them all. No house in China may be without a copy of the almanac, or without at least its title page in miniature, printed on purpose with one or two leaves affixed, as a charm, in accordance with the pars prot toto principle, and sold in shops for one coin or cash. These charms are deposited in beds, in corners, in cupboards, in such like places, and worn on the body, and no bride passing from her paternal home into that of her bridegroom may omit the title page among the exercising objects, with which her pocket is for that occasion filled. Every man by nature is a demon expeller, whereas a 
As I have stated on page 4, he himself possesses a Shen, or Yang soul. But this Yang soul should be well developed. In other words, he should have vitality or health, bodily strength, boldness, intellect, and above all things, moral rectitude, such as heaven possesses, which never deviates from the Tao or right order of the universe. The virtuous man is beyond the attacks of spectral influences. Heaven indeed would not allow its specters to do him any harm. A weak, languishing person is continually liable to disease, which, according to the Chinese mode of thinking, means that he is under the influence of specters. Whenever sudden attacks of specters are feared, as in specter panics, people crowd together, crying and shouting. It is also a common trait in specter tales that whenever any person is attacked, one man running to the rescue suffices to put the specters to flight. Blowing on the sick, the swooned, or the mad, or spurting water on them from the mouth, or spitting upon them, preferably in the face, is a good means to drive out the indwelling specters. Indeed, breath, being warm, is identified with the yang, soul or shen of the person who exhales it, and water from the mouth, or spittle, is a condensation of breath. Portraits of bold men of former times, of warriors and heroes, are much used as charms and amulets, and suspended in houses and temples. Tales abound of such men who assailed specters, knocked them down, and killed them. Bold men may be seen to this day doing their exercising work, their long hair flowing down disorderly on their backs, brandishing swords and spears, jumping and shouting in the most awe-inspiring way. We should say behaving as madmen, scolding and reviling. Not seldom they wear terrifying masks. They appear also in funeral possessions. Much might be told of historical specialists in fighting specters, most of whom were at the same time endowed with the faculty of seeing specters. To see these, they used magic mirrors, or they acquired their second sight by eating certain drugs, composed, for instance, of the eyes of ravens, onion seeds, blood of certain rare animals, and similar hodgepodge, which in China as everywhere, are integral parts of the system of magic. The religion proper of the Chinese nation is the Taoist religion, a system built up on the broad base sketched in the first chapter, namely the doctrine that the world is ruled by Shen and Kuei, or gods and devils evolved from the Yang and the Yin. The vicissitudes of those operations constitute the Tao, or the order of the world. As a system of religion, it purports to muzzle the Kuei and stimulate the operation of the Shen. It's exercising polytheism. It is a cult of all the gods with which East Asian imagination has filled the universe, marked by ritualism and magic of a development so great that its match cannot be found in this world of men. And this magic is in the first place exorcism. Exorcism is the main function of the Taoist priesthood, which performs this principally by means of charms and spells. The occult power ascribed in China in all times and ages to charms and spells may be said to have no limits. It puts in the forefront an important tenet. Words are no idle sounds. Characters or pen strokes are not mere ink or paint. But they constitute or produce the reality which they represent. And whereas any desired magical effect may be expressed in word or writing, charms and spells can affect everything. They have enabled Taoists and other priests for ages to call down gods to their altars, to make rain or bright weather, thunder or snow. They are used to divert or annihilate swarms of locusts, to prevent attacks of tigers, banditti or rebels, to ward off conflagrations, burglary, theft, 
to deliver souls out of hell and to raise them to a better condition. Making and using charms and spells is a religious art and a science of a high order. Causing religion to fulfill its highest aim, viz. the promotion of human happiness, as well in this life as in the life hereafter. They have in bygone ages enabled many a man to change himself into a beast. To this hour, simply by being fastened up or burned, they rid houses of mice and vermin, forests of venomous snakes, the air of mosquitoes. By the hand of able magicians, they may be changed into living fish, good to eat, or into any species of animal, voracious or venomous, calculated to wound or kill the magician's enemies. Charms may enable a man to pass through fire unhurt, to sleep on the bottom of a boiling stream, to travel over thousands of miles and back in a minute. Men hidden in the ground and supposed to be specters have been killed immediately by being worked upon with charms and the mistake of being discovered. They were resuscitated by the means of contrary charms. In short, the useful miracles performed every day in China by means of charms are endless. Mostly, they are Kabbalistic characters or lines and points, written or drawn on paper or little boards, intelligible to magicians only. The effect of religious ceremonies performed by Taoist priests is determined by the charms they use or burn during it, most of which are directed against the quay. The signs they bear express destruction of specters by means of swords, bows, light, fire, gods, and saints, as also orders given to specters to flee, or to gods to come, and, by their mere presence, destroy specters. They generally bear the impress of a seal, because a written order or mandate is in China null and void unless it is sealed. More powerful than any others are the charms which have been bestowed upon mankind by mighty gods holy men or saints. In fact, the effect of any decree or command, whatever depends in the first place upon the power of the being from whom it proceeds. Supremely excellent are, of course, the charms which have been given to the world by Lao Tzu, the reputed patriarch of Taoism. Charms are used in great profusion to cure the fever-stricken and the insane, as well as others thought to be the victims of demoniacal illness. Such patients are given water to drink in which ashes of charms are mixed, or over which mighty spells have been pronounced by clever magicians, who derive a considerable part of their income from such medical practices. Or such water is sprinkled over them, or throughout the room. In the meantime, spells are loudly vociferated over the patient, to compel the demon to depart. Needles are thrust into his body, cauterizations are applied on it, swords brandishing over the bed. It is an old custom to accuse the Chinese of worshipping devils and sacrificing to them. The accusation has been disputed, but there is truth in it, and no wonder, since the Chinese are inveterate worshippers of the dead, and among the dead there are so many revengeful, malicious specters. Demonolatry is no doubt a necessary element in animistic religion. Demonolatry is mentioned by Wang Chung, an author of the second century of our era. To this day, counterfeit paper money is strewn about in all burial processions to appease the evil spirits which might roam around. In case of the illness of husbands or children, women are wont to sacrifice to the specter who is the author of the malady, generally going out for the purpose into the street, according to the instructions of a soothsayer. This is done especially when the specter is deemed to be an earth demon the author of troubles in pregnancy, or of infantile ailments. Often these specters are 
regularly sacrificed to twice in each month, on the second and the sixteenth day. Many temples contain images of gods of so low a rank in the divine hierarchy that it is impossible to say whether they are not rather devils in the service of gods for the dissemination of evil. Such beings are worshipped by the people on a most extensive scale. Tales abound in the books in which specters are depicted as harming men with no other purpose but to force them to offer food and paper money in order to prevent worse evil. These facts show that demonolatry may even attain larger dimensions in China than is generally suggested. A religion in which the fear of devils performs so great a part that they are even worshipped and sacrificed to certainly represents a religion in a low stage. It is strange to see such a religion prevail among a nation so highly civilized as China is generally supposed to be. And does this not compel us to subject our high ideas of that civilization to some revision? No doubt we ought to rid ourselves a little of the conception urged upon us by enthusiastic friends of China, that her religion stands high enough to want no foreign religion to supplant it. The truth is that its universalistic animism, with its concomitant demonistic doctrine, renders the Chinese people unhappy. For most unhappy must be a people always living in a thousand, a hundred thousand fears of invisible beings which surround the path of life with dangers on every hand at every moment. If it is the will of God that man shall have a religion in order to be happy, the Chinese religion is certainly no religion shaped by God. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.